All right, well, let's get started into 1 Samuel. <coughs> Actually, we're going to have two books in the English, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. In the Hebrew, these make up one book, one book, and they're about the development of the kingdom. So we have a cartoon here with our king, and this is our first king, and that's why there's one donkey there on the, on the right, uh, that, because Saul goes looking for his lost asses. And he does not have a heart for God, so he has a black heart with a red circle and line through it. No heart for God. And that's Saul, the major king in First Samuel. Oh, this is the one. I knew there was a slide presentation I had. That I took it off of your notes instead of my notes. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll fix that pretty easily. <clears throat> Pretty easily. Let me look here. We'll just do it this way. You all read that? I guess so. Okay. Originally, first and second Samuel were one book. In the Hebrew, just the book of Samuel. But it was too big to put on one scroll, so it was split into two scrolls. This is why it came to be divided into two books, first and second Samuel. But actually, in the original, it's one book written by one writer. So we should treat it as one book. So that the introduction that we have on Samuel today, going down through point seven, the first two pages, is the introduction that serves for both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. In the Septuagint, this book was divided into two and called 1 and 2 Kingdoms. And then, of course, the next two books were became 3rd and 4th Kingdoms. Okay? So you have 1 and 2 Kingdoms and 3rd and 4th Kingdoms. So this just shows how they were split up. The Jews called it Samuel because he is the first and most dominant character in the book. That name was carried over into the Septuagint, the LXX, and the English. In the Septuagint and Vulgate, the books Samuel and Kings are called First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kingdoms of Kings. Author. The author is unknown. Tradition assigns part of the book to Samuel but it probably reached its final form under the supervision of Gad and Nathan. Who were Gad and Nathan? They were the prophets who served under David. So Samuel dies when? He dies before David becomes king. He dies before Saul is finally killed. This is why you have this episode at the end of Samuel where he's called up from the dead by the witch of Endor. That's a fascinating story we'll get to. So we don't know. Samuel may have written part of it, and then his successor wrote the next section, and then his successor wrote the next section, and put it all together, obviously all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The writer is obviously an eyewitness, uh, though he lived during the time of the Davidic kingship and perhaps even afterward, 
into the divided kingdom. And then I give you some references. The date is uncertain. It's written early. Some could have been written while Samuel was alive, some later. Obviously, it's not written until it's completed. So it's written in its final form is sometime after, uh, after the death of David. So we put the date somewhere between 950 and 1000 uh, B.C. Somewhere between 950 and 1000 B.C. But ultimately it's uncertain. The time period. Well, the story begins during the chaos of the judges when the nation is overrun by the Philistines and under their domination. So, what's the spiritual condition at the beginning? Apostasy. They're, they're under the domination of a foreign power. What does that remind you of? No? Remember those five stages of discipline in Leviticus 26? So you always think, why is it this way? What does the Bible tell me about this? God told them in the Mosaic Law that if you're not obedient to me, you're going to go through economic collapse, you're going to go through drought, the sun will be like bronze and the earth like iron. But wait a minute. When Elijah, we're not going to get there in this course, but when Elijah comes along and goes to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain for three years, or it's not going to, he says it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. Why does he say that? Remember, he's a prophet. He's prosecuting the law. What did the law say? The law said, if you don't obey my covenant, the sun is going to be, the sky is going to be like bronze and the earth like iron. It's not going to rain. Elijah doesn't just come along and say, well, it's a great idea. I think I'm just going to tell Ahab it's not going to rain. This doesn't come out of thin air. It's based on the Mosaic Law. So, so, when, so what we see is that the, the back in Leviticus 26, we see that God told them that they're going to go through these successive stages of military defeat, military collapse, military oppression, and eventually a scattering among all the nations where they're removed from the land. Of course, that doesn't occur until later on in their history. But that's what's happening. They're in apostasy. They're under divine discipline. They're under the domination of the uh, Philistines. And at the end of First Samuel, or the end of Samuel, at the end of Second Samuel, what's their condition? They're at the high point. They, they've conquered the most land that they're going to conquer. They're wealthy. They're, uh, they're spiritually on target. They're, uh, Solomon's about to build a temple. I mean, the glory, they're in the middle of their glory days. What made the difference? What made the difference is the, the, the Messiah, Messianic leader. David is the anointed leader as a picture of Christ. It's really a gospel message. The people begin in slavery. What brings them out of slavery is a man whose heart is totally devoted to God who is a picture of Jesus Christ. So we look at the time period and we see that it begins during the era of the judges and it ends, um, 1 Samuel ends with the 
beginning of the, of the of, or the middle of the United Kingdom. Uh, you would go through the end of the Judges. The United Kingdom begins with Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Three kings in the United Kingdom. We saw with our timeline last week that uh, that Samuel is born just a few years after Samson was born, and so there's a contrast between the degradation and the apostasy of Samson and the honor and the integrity and the devotion to God of Samuel. And Samuel is the one who brings uh, integrity to the nation. Uh, we start with this debauched priest named Eli. He's fat, he's corpulent, he's lazy, he's got two rebellious sons, and he, they're basically abusing the people. And so we see the apostate priesthood at the beginning of the book of Samuel. Theme. The theme of the book of Samuel is the theme of the Bible. It's God's gracious provision of a deliverer to free us from bondage. In the beginning, as I pointed out just a minute ago, the nation's in disarray. They're enslaved to a foreign power. They're in spiritual darkness, despair, and degeneracy. But God moves in grace to provide a messianic king who delivers them from their enemies and brings in a golden age of freedom, peace, and prosperity. But each figure in Samuel has a tragic flaw, just like every person does. We all have a sin nature. Samuel is a failed parent. His children aren't any better than Eli's children. Uh, Saul is a rebellious king. David is a sinful believer. But God in grace deals with each one of them. Samuel is blessed. Saul is disciplined. And David is forgiven, yet... He suffers horrible consequences for his sin. In, in this book, that is in Samuel, Israel rejects God as her king. By 1 Samuel 7, they want a king like everybody else. And that's typical of many believers. They want to be saved. They want to go to heaven. But they want to be able to live their life pretty much like all the unbelievers around them because in our superficial uh, mentality, we think they're having more fun than God's going to let us have. In this book, it, uh, so God, Israel rejects God as a king, but God is going to work through that rejection to give them a king like they want to show them that's not what they want. And before they're ready to accept the kind of king God is ready to give them, they have to go through and learn the lesson of a bad king. And see, Saul is, from a human perspective, he's everything. He's tall, he's handsome, he's witty, he's accomplished, he's, he's everything. He's victorious in battle, he's a great military leader, he defeats the Amalekites almost completely. It's up to David to finish him off, but he defeats the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were the, were the uh, Nazis of that generation, the uh, radical Islamists of this generation. They were the primary enemy that was uh, plaguing everybody in the Middle East. So Saul is a tremendous hero, but he has a tragic flaw because he becomes arrogant, self-serving, and rejects God and is disobedient. 
First uh, Samuel 8 is one of the greatest treatises in the Bible on the dangers of centralized political power. We have to put that in contrast to what? Judges. Judges is all about the problems of decentralized power. Well, if decentralized power, it leads to anarchy and everyone doing what they want to do, just an extension of democracy. I'm not a fan of democracy. Um, you're looking at me like with a question in your face. Yeah. What's wrong with democracy? Yeah, because people are flawed. Didn't you know that? So we have to have government to make us do what we No, no. See, this is, this is the point that the scriptures are making here, is that centralized government is a flaw also. Why? Because they're sinners. Democracy is flawed. Why? Because the majority it can often be wrong. I mean, just because you have the rule of the majority doesn't mean it's right. More often than not, if you really study the Bible, you'll realize that 90% of the time the majority is wrong. If you've ever been a pastor and gone through any kind of a church crisis, you know the majority usually doesn't understand the issues, they're not well informed, they're voting out of ignorance, and they're wrong. Most of the time. Most of the time. I don't have a, the Bible doesn't have a high view of people, so why should we? <laughs> that's right. That's right. See, that, if you're biblical, you understand. See, that's why when our nation was founded, it was founded to be a republic, a representative republic, which is different from a democracy. Democracy did not become the primary frame of reference for understanding the political system in America until the middle 19th century. In, in, the, in, the, in the 1700s, if you were in school, the, the highest standard of government in the history of man was the Roman Empire, a repub- the Republic, rather. By the middle 19th century, the standard had shifted to the democracy of Greece. And that changed the way we looked at government. It changed, changed the way we interpreted the Constitution. But the Constitution had checks and balances in it. That's why we have an executive that's got checks by the judiciary and by the legislature, and a legislature that's checked by the veto of the president and by the Supreme Court, and a Supreme Court that's checked by the presidency and the legislature. Why? Because what? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so you have to have checks and balances because man is inherently sinful and if given enough leeway, he will become tyrannical. And that's the warning that's here. And that's why, you, and the more, and the further you go in history, you see that even uh, nation. I mean, if most of us went back a hundred years ago, we would we would be shocked at how much freedom we've lost because the government always encroaches. That's really the message of First Samuel eight. Government is always going to encroach on the freedom of the people. And there has to be a check and balance. Okay. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that you never learn in school because you're not taught by anybody who's... There ought to be guys going to graduate schools and Christian universities writing theses and and doctoral dissertations on judges in 1 Samuel 8 and its impact on political science. What we don't realize in our country is back in the 1600s, 
uh, I don't know if you've studied English history, but back in the 1600s, remember, there was a major conflict in England over who has ultimate power in the English government. And it came to a head during the reign of Charles I. The Stuart uh, dynasty held to something called the divine right of kings. And that ran afoul of the parliament in England. And the parliament in England by the early 1600s was dominated by what kind of people? Anybody remember? The Puritans. The Puritans. And what were the Puritans basing their political theory on? The Bible. I mean, you go back and read their writings, they were going into 1 Samuel 8, they were going into Judges, and they were developing political theory out of the Scriptures, and they said, no, no king has the right to be an absolute uh, authority. He is under the authority of God, as is everybody else. And see, who appoints, whose authority is Saul under? In 1 Samuel, whose authority is he under? The prophet. The prophet anoints the king. And the prophet tells the king, you're disobedient. Because the king is under the authority of God. Now notice what happens here. The king is anointed by whom? The prophet. Does that tell you anything about what happened with John the Baptist and Jesus? And he anointed Jesus, who is comes to be the king. See, there's a pat, very important pattern here that we have to pay attention to. So, anyhow, the Puritans understood that, and then they ended up leading a revolution with, uh, against the monarchy because the monarchy was violating the law. Law is over the king. There was a very famous uh, political tract written uh, at that time by Samuel Rutherford called Law is King, Lex Rex. Law is king, not the king. The king cannot arbitrarily come in and make decisions, but every every uh, member of go- human member of government is under law. And see, that influenced how our founding fathers thought. That was their heritage. They understood these things. Uh, and, and I mean, they didn't write little pamphlets on this. They were massive, massive uh, tomes on this, investigating, thinking through the implications of government and authority and law and, and basing it on the Scripture. But see, we don't have people who have that kind of integrity anymore because we, don't, we, we think that the Bible only relates to what? It's Christian. The only Bible who relates to Christians or it relates to salvation or your spiritual life, but if I'm going to study politics, why should I go study the Bible? If I'm going to study history, why should I start with the Bible? And what I'm hoping you get out of this course, if you don't get anything else out of it other than salvation by grace through faith, is that the Bible gives you the framework for addressing everything in life. Why? Because God created everything. Go back to God. God created society. He created the rules for society. Society is just, when when people relate to one another, another way we call that is what? Politics. So if you're going to do anything in politics, where do you start? You've got to start with Scripture. Let's build a, you know, I'm not Republican or Democrat, I'm a Biblicist. Let's start with the Bible 
And that doesn't mean, and what the scriptures, the scriptures don't talk about any one form of government as the best, except for what? What's the best in the Bible? What is the, what's the only perfect government? The king, the, a kingship, a monarch, where Jesus is the king. And aside from that, there is no perfect government. All human governments will be flawed. Why? This is the message of judges again. Why? Because the people are flawed, the leadership is flawed, and the priesthood is flawed. Same thing. Reference to the church being. Yeah. Be no perfect church. That's right. No perfect church. Why? Because people are flawed, because pastors are flawed, because the leaders are flawed. So, Samuel. Just get you thinking about some things. So we can stop changing the church. <laughs> a six A gives us our chronology. I give you a um, I give you a chart there to try to give you the uh, different uh, dates of the different people, so you can see how everybody relates to one another. One of the things you should see is that John. Look down to Jonathan. How many times have you heard Bible stories or heard or, or watched cartoons and David and Jonathan are, are, are best buddies? Right? Are they the same age? No, they weren't. In fact, what you learn is that Jonathan is born about 1071 and David is born about 1041. That means that Jonathan is how much older than David? 30 years older than David. What does that tell you about Jonathan's character? He's a follow-up. No, he's a friend. He's a friend, but he tells you he is has objectivity because how many sons of a king, a crown prince, is going to have the humility and the objectivity to recognize God's not giving it to me; He's giving it to David, and that's my best friend, and I'm going to protect him. Yes. That's right. And that tells you a lot about Jonathan's character that he rec- and it tells you a lot about David's character. That there's thirty years that separate them, but it's the age isn't the issue. They are that they are that close. That is a phenomenal lesson to gain from this. But see, most people don't get that because they don't do take the time to try to crank through the study of the chronology. People say, why do you spend so much time on chronology? Well, you never know what kind of gold you're going to find. These are the kinds of things that are there. It tells us a lot about Jonathan. He is a, uh, and, tells, and, and tells us a lot about David. Okay, the structure. The structure. In Samuel, you have three sections. And it's really biogra- based on, uh, it's biographical. Samuel is the main character from, from chapter 1 through chapter 7. Saul is the main character from 8 through 15. And then David becomes the main focus in 16 to 31. Samuel from 1 to 7, Saul from 8 to 15, and David from 16 to 31. Okay? Let's go through the book itself. This is a great book. Great stories in this book, but tremendous lessons. Tremendous lessons. We see in the um, first section, just remember there are three sections. Think through, take them through with me. Samuel, Saul, Saul, David. David. 
Well, who are the three characters in Samuel? Samuel, Saul, David. If you understand that, that gives you that that sort of that clothes rod in your in your head on which you can then hang all the details. When you think about Samuel, we need to think about Hannah. We need to think about Eli. We need to think about uh, government, the, the rejection of God as king. So those are the main things that we talk about with, with Samuel. God causes Samuel to be born in chapters 1 and 2. We see how God works to bring this new prophet and judge. Samuel is not only uh, a prophet, but he's also a judge. He is the last judge in the period of the Judges. He is not in the book of Judges, but he is the last judge in the book of Judges. Well, that's why they get the second wife, is because one is barren. Now, that's a good question. Now, now, now what would you do? What, what would you... Where would you go? Think about this a little bit. You've made a great observation. What's going on here with two wives and one's barren? He madly loved first. No, no. Don't, be, don't act like a superficial American. <laughs> Think deeply. What's going on biblically? What's going on biblically? Think in the context of the Bible. How many women are barren? Seed. Somebody said seed. That's very important. How many women in the Bible are barren? Who's the first barren woman in the Bible? Sarah. Sarah. Who's the second? Rachel. Rachel. Rebecca. The third is is Rachel. Who are they the wives of? Abraham. The patriarchs. Do you think there's something important there? Yeah. Yeah. What's the promise? Land, seed, and blessing. You think the fact that the three wives of the three patriarchs are all barren? You think that just happened? No. What's God doing? That he's in control. He's going to bring what out of what? He's going to bring life out of death. God is the one who brings life out of death. Who's the next barren woman that we find in Scripture? No. 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 Samson's mother. Oh, no. Hannah. Hannah. No, she's unnamed. Not Samuel's mother. She's unnamed. That's why I said Samson's mother. We don't know her name. Samson's mother. Samson's mother lives at the same time as who? Samuel's mother. You think that's a coincidence? No. No, that's right. You've got, you've got at the same time, you've got two barren women. The mother of Samson and the mother of Samuel. The mother of Samson is going to have a son. The mother of Sa- Hannah is going to have a son. The, uh, Samson is going to be a degenerate judge, and Samuel is going to be a godly judge. You think there's a lesson here? It's God's providing leadership, even in the midst of apostasy. That's the barrenness of the womb reflects the barrenness of their spiritual condition. Yet God is the one who brings life where there's death. Now, who's the next barren woman in Scripture? Hmm? After Hannah. 
Now, let me ask you another question. Does the Mosaic Law say anything about barren women? That's right. It's a sign of the if, 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 if those five stages of discipline. I keep going back to Leviticus 26. Do you think it's important? How, do you think it's important enough to show up on a test? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Leviticus 26 gives you that structure for the rest. The, the cursings and the blessings are the basis for the rest of the Old Testament. When they're obedient, they get blessed. When they're disobedient, they go through these cycles, these stages of, of discipline. And part of that is that your women are going to be barren. All of a sudden, we pop up at the end of Judges, and at the end of the Judges period, we've got two barren women. Now, how many barren women were there in Scripture between, oh, let's just say 2000 B.C. and the time of Christ? How many barren women were there? Who knows? Do you think there were only six? No. Or only five? No. But God tells us about these five, so there must be something significant about this, don't you think? Now, there's not another barren woman in the Old Testament mentioned until who? In the Old Testament? There's not another one in the Old Testament. Elizabeth is the next one. And Elizabeth is going to be who? She's going to be the mother of John the Baptist. Now, all those barren wombs are wombs that can't bear children, can't bear the seed, and God brings life where there's no life. What is that a picture of? Well, it's a, yeah, that's right. That's a picture of regeneration. It's also a picture of somebody else. Is it, what's, what is that all picture? The seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman? Jesus. Go back to what did God tell, tell Eve? Your seed will yeah. will bruise your seed, but your seed will crush his head. The seed of the woman. It's fulfilled in... Now, isn't that a strange phrase? What is the seed of the woman. Yeah, the seed of the woman. Isn't that a strange phrase? What's the seed? The seed comes from the man. The Greek word for seed is what? Sperma. The seed comes from the man. So you don't normally talk about the seed of the woman, do you? Because this speaks of the virgin birth. See, see, connect the dots. See, God's building a picture as you go through the Old Testament. That's one thing I hope you really get out of this. Is that the Old Testament builds, it's like building a jigsaw puzzle one piece at a time. And you're so used to looking at the completed picture, but you don't, by looking at the New Testament, but you know what? You don't see what you're looking at. When you go back to the Old Testament, you start looking at each piece of the puzzle, start getting put together, and all of a sudden now when you look at the whole thing, when you come to the end of the when you come into the New Testament, all of a sudden it's going to have significance and meaning because you understand the old that's just how the Jews were. When God said in Galatians four four that Jesus came in the fullness of time he ha- it took him 4,000 years to prepare man to be ready to accept and identify the Messiah. He couldn't just pop Jesus in there with the first baby because man wasn't ready. He took 4,000 years to prepare him to, to identify Jesus. 
Okay. Chapter 1, we learn that God's grace is sufficient to resolve Hannah's problem. God's grace is sufficient to handle all our problems. The key people here are Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina. The poly, uh, polygamy of Elkanah, the fact that he has two wives, doesn't mean that God authorizes it. It is indicative of what? Paganism. A pagan culture. Now, Hannah's problem is that she's barren, and Penina ridicules her. In a sense, it, they, the two of them represent uh, Israel, because Hannah represents Israel. Israel is barren spiritually at this time, and she's being ridiculed and maltreated by the Philistines. Penina represents the Philistines. Hannah made a vow to God that if God would give her a son... He would be a Nazarite from birth. Samson is going to replace Samuel. Uh, Was Hannah a good mother or a poor mother? Why would you say that? I'm just giving you something to think about. Would you take your son and give him to a drunk priest who's got two abusive children? Not in the... She, she left him in God's hands. She, but she didn't leave him in God's hands. She left him in Eli's hands. She left him in Eli's hands. God, Just because you're trusting God doesn't mean God wants you to put your brain in neutral. God was gracious to Hannah, but Hannah did not make a wise decision. Now... Just something to think about. Hannah bargains with God to give her son. Is that biblical or pagan? Pagan. That's pagan. Because God in His grace deals with us where we are, not where we ought to be. Just because somebody in the Bible does something doesn't mean it, mean it's right. Don't make that mistake. You know, evaluate what they're doing. Is, is Hannah right? Does God want us to bargain? God, I'll do this. If you'll do this for me, I'll do this. No, that's pagan. But God in His grace is going to, is going to deal with her. He's, he's got purposes that are greater than her failures. God is always deals with us in, in such a manner. Hannah, though, has some uh, spiritual knowledge. In her uh, song of praise in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, she ends up praising God because, and in the last verse, in the last verse, somebody read the last verse of uh, verse eleven to me. Read two two ten. In the last verse, she connects the birth of, a, of Samuel to God's provision of a king. And in prayer, two ten. Yeah. See, is there a king in Israel yet? Not yet. Not yet. But she is some sharp enough or under the inspiration of prophecy, the Holy Spirit, as she is writing this this hymn, she connects the birth of Samuel to uh, God's provision of a king. Right. Hannah's son is Samuel. 
And she connects the birth of Samuel to God's provision of a king. Now, in chapter 2, God causes the old order under Eli, the priesthood under Eli, to collapse because of their paganism. It's divine discipline on them. Uh, We're told about how God is cheated because of the pride of Eli's sons. When the people come to bring their offerings to God, what happens? They take them. They cook them. They take take the food for themselves. But God is honored by the humble service of Samuel. Samuel is truly serving the Lord. Now, we're told that, that, that um, one other point. Yes? King. Connects the uh, Samuel's provision of king. Um, Hannah keeps, this is another odd point, Hannah keeps Samuel at home until she weans him. How old is that? Well, what's interesting is that that um, I think it was at least three. It could be as late as five or six. In some Middle Eastern cultures, because as long as a woman is lactating, she's probably not going to be fertile. A five-year-old. And they would, yeah. I, and I thought that was really weird. The first time I taught through this, I was pastoring a church out in the country, and there was a lady in my congregation who played the, played the piano, and she didn't stop breastfeeding her son until he was old enough to understand her explanation of why it was time to stop. Oh, God. He was about four. But we find that to be odd in our culture. We find that to be odd in our culture, but in Middle Eastern cultures, the average age when you weaned a a child was between five and seven. So Samuel is not this two- or three-year-old that's just being taken down and dumped uh, with Eli. He's a little older. She's had time to teach and train him and give him some some God instruction. He's about what? I'd say somewhere between four and seven. We don't know. I mean, it doesn't say, but I would just say that that, that's the, from what I've studied on the issue, that's the, um, that was the average age. Now, what we see here is that in in chapter two is that God's cheated by Eli's sons. He's honored by the humble service of, of Samuel, but he announces judgment on Eli and his, and his household. In this line, there's a tr- in this section, there's a transfer of power announced from the line of Aaron's son Ithamar to the line through Eliezer, which will eventually develop down through the line of Zadok the priest. When you read that, what do you think of Houstonians? Where do you all live? Houston. No, you go down to South Posto. What's what's very famous store down on South Posto? Zadok's Jewelry. Oh, yeah. Where do you think that family comes from? You? Yeah. I, like I mean, when you see a Jew and their name is Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, that's the Hebrew word for priest. Or their last name is Levi, 
or even Cowan, C-O-W-A-N is like Cohen. I grew up with Cowans and Levi's. In fact, it turned out I had, I had two friends that I grew up with. One's last name was Cowan, one's last name was Levi, and it turned out that they, they discovered that they were actually related to one another. But Levi comes from where? The Levitical tribe. Cohen, Cowan, all these names come out, uh, indicate that they're from the priestly tribe. And so Zadok, the Zadok's jewelers, where do you think that family comes from? These, they, they didn't just pick that name. That goes back. They could probably trace their heritage back to the to the, uh, the priesthood. And it is the Zadokite line that will be the line that serves in the millennial temple for in Ezekiel 44, uh, 15. And the reason you have this shift is because of the failure of Eli and his family. Because Eli is a descendant of Ithamar. And he's he's a spiritual failure. Isn't that fascinating? So, God is going to judge this line. So he calls the first prophet of the new order. This is the next section, chapter 3.1 to 4.1a. God is going to train... Samuel through Eli. And then we have the story of how Samuel is asleep at night and he hears God's voice calling and God calls Samuel to his prophetic ministry. He wakes up, he goes to the temple, says, Eli, I heard a voice calling. Eli, go back to sleep. You're dreaming. Second time it happens, he begins to recognize, Eli begins to recognize it's from God. So we have some information here. Comments. Before What? Eli was the priest. Eli was the high priest, a descendant through from Aaron through Ithamar. Before Samuel began his ministry, revelation from the Lord was rare in Israel. That's in chapter three, verse one. See, I can probably, probably do that. Wait a minute, yeah. I can probably do this. Wait, 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 wait. No, it's going to go wrong. Okay. Notice what verse 1 says. Can you all read that? Is that large enough? The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. God's not speaking. See, we live in an era in many in some churches where they think God needs to be speaking all the time, but historically God did not do that. Second comment is that Samuel is a boy when he begins to serve as a judge and a prophet. He is the word now the boy Samuel. He is still young. His confirmation as a prophet is based on Deuteronomy 18.22. 
Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So what happens in uh, 1 Samuel 3 is God gives him uh, revelation and it is confirmatory of his role as a prophet. And then the next point, the two important chapters which give qualification for prophet are what? Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13, whatever a prophet says has to conform to previously accepted revelation. doesn't matter how many miracles are there. doesn't matter if he raises people from the dead. What matters is his message, not his method. Deuteronomy 19, everything he or Deuteronomy 18, everything he says has to come to pass. 100% of the time. Well, because the nation is pagan, still under the time of the judges, God is going to remove the ark from its resting place at Shiloh. This is the story of chapter 4. Israel is going to be defeated. Why? Because of her lack of trust. This takes place at the Battle of Aphek. This is the um, fill-in-the-blank under the comments. The ark is lost at the Battle of Aphek. This is one of the most important battles in the, in the ancient world. The Battle of Aphek. The, the Jews are soundly defeated by the Pharisees. And as a result of that, when news gets back to Eli's daughter-in-law, who's pregnant, she immediately gives birth, and she names her son Ichabod. Ichabod. Which means no glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And so she names him Ichabod. No glory. She's his daughter-in-law. She's Eli's daughter-in-law. She's married to one of his reprobate sons. So God shows that he's... uh, God then has to demonstrate to them in the next couple of chapters that he is able to lead his people. He demonstrates that he's superior to all religious political systems uh, in chapter 5. Because now that the ark is taken, the ark is taken, and what happens? They take the ark, the Philistines take the ark back and put it in the temple of Dagon. What happens? Dagon falls. Dagon the next morning wake up, and Dagon is lying prostrate, bowing down before the ark. So they set him up again. The next morning he's bowing down, his hands and feet are cut off, so they can't stand him up again. Okay, and 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 then. What happens? Then the people get a plague of hemorrhoids, tumors of some kind. And so they're going to make a little offering to God, and they're going to make these little images of tumors or hemorrhoids. I don't know what that looked like. I'll leave that to your imagination. (laughs) But what does this tell us? It tells us God is showing that He controls His creation. He's greater than the gods of the of the enemy of Israel's enemies. And that he can provide completely for the people. Now, under the comments on these verses, I have six points. First of all, it shows us that God has a great sense of humor. This is like lefty 
killing fatty in the outhouse. You know, God is poking fun at his people. You get a bunch of uptight Americans that start talking about hemorrhoids and, you know, God's falling down. This is not politically correct. God doesn't respect other people's religions at all because they're wrong. God doesn't respect Muslims. God doesn't respect Buddhists. God doesn't respect Hindus. God didn't respect the false religions of the Pharisees. He knocked down their idol and he cut his hands and feet off. He humiliated the false god Dagon. Now think about that. How does that factor into our views as Christians? How we, you know, we need to respect other people, their views, but should I as a believer respect the false teaching of, of false religions? No. But we live in a culture that says we have to do that. If we don't, it's what? It's hate speech. It's being defined as hate speech. And that what hate speech is setting us up for is eventually the legal system whereby Christians can be put in jail or prison because we say that homosexuality is wrong, or we say that Islam is wrong, or we say that Buddhism is wrong, or we say that any value uh, that's opposed to the Word of God is wrong. Because if you say it's wrong, you're being mean to me. Yes, Mike. So you saying that Christianity one day will be outlawed as it was during the Roman Empire. Yeah, I think so. I think that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. Okay, and then God's going to go back, and so they tie up the tie the, the they put put the ark in a in a um, a wagon and hook up two milch cows to it. Now, a milch cow is a, is are cows that are milking their young. And normally a milch cow won't leave her calves. See, this is miraculous. These cows, just, they just take God right back to, take the ark right back to where it's supposed to go. And so there's a demonstration of God's sovereignty over creation. Uh, fourth point, God punishes those who treat him lightly. And at Beth Shemesh, there's 50,000 who look into the ark. They're curious about God. There's no respect for God. And so they treat him lightly and they're killed. Wow. That's really not politically correct. He's not understanding. God's not compassionate. He did he didn't give them a second chance. So the ark is then moved to Kiriath Jerim, where it remains and they dedicate the Rock of Assistance, Ebenezer, commemorating God's victory over the Philistines. They then have victory over them at Mizpah in 722. Okay, we'll stop there. We need to take a break. And uh, we'll come back from the break and look at um, the second section dealing with the rise of the monarchy and Saul.